Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We have a lot to talk about today. I hope it's not going to be as dark as I'm afraid it's going to be. Uh, but I want to say a word before we get started about Bulwark Plus. We appreciate all of your support for the Bulwark for listening to this podcast. And just a reminder that if you sign up for Bulwark Plus, you not only get to participate in live streams like the one that we're going to have Thursday night, another, we're going to have our holiday live stream with the Bulwark staff looking, maybe just sort of our our final word on 2020, looking ahead for 2021. That's going to be tomorrow night. It's going to be 8 o'clock Eastern time. If you're a member of Bulwark Plus, you'll be able to participate in that. Uh, also, you'll be, uh, you'd also be receiving the daily newsletters from Jonathan Last, the triad, and my daily newsletter that comes out, Morning Shots. And this morning's Morning Shot was, I'm, I do think that there's something significant that is happening right now. And I, and I know that um, you know, Mitch McConnell was way too late in saying what he said, acknowledging Joe Biden's victory. But it, that really does mean that uh, there's going to be a struggle between Trump and McConnell over all of this. And so I wrote about this, the way that Trump is drawing a line in this new Republican civil war. And, and the line is between the merely Trumpy versus the completely crazy. You have... You have McConnell saying to his fellow Republicans, look, this thing's over. It's done. Let's not go to January 6th and have a floor fight. And you have and you have Donald Trump saying we have not yet begun to fight. So this is these are irreconcilable differences. So, again, on the one hand, you have uh, Republican elected officials, the others, the the batshit crazy, you know, cracking crowd, QAnon, the Chinese hacking clown coup, martial law, lock them up crowd. And the important thing to realize is that Trump is really siding with these completely crazy uh, folks, and he's demanding that Republicans do the same thing. So the next 21 days, between now and January 6th, uh, is going to be uh, is going to be interesting, and and it will have long-term consequences for the direction of the Republican Party post-Trump. Uh, it, it is interesting watching this breakup take place, and there's a lot of bitterness, and. In my newsletter, I said, and sometimes the pet rabbit gets boiled to death. You know, when you have a breakup in a dysfunctional relationship, sometimes the pet rabbit gets boiled to death. And then it occurred to me, I'm guessing a lot of people in our audience don't, don't even get that, that reference. Hey, so let's, uh, let's bring in our special, uh, uh, special guest today, uh, Elizabeth Newman, uh, who was a former senior advisor, deputy chief of staff, the Department of Homeland Security in the Trump administration, but broke with the Trump administration and has been one of the strongest voices since then. Um, and uh, she joins us again on the podcast. So good morning, Elizabeth. Good morning, Charlie. Thanks for having me. Okay, first of all, I got to ask you, did, did, did you get the reference for the pet rabbit gets boiled to death? I did. Yes. Okay. Good. Good. This is fatal attraction because I, I do realize that that if, if you're talking about a movie that's more than ten years old, you have a large portion of the audience that has no freaking idea what you're talking about. Especially so, if you have my background, where you know you're not allowed to have watched those movies growing up. So I, I still find that um, I, I have a lot of cultural uh, maturing to do, uh, and and my husband helps me with that. Yeah, little gaps uh, there, and because so I'm so I'm sorry for the R-rated language so far, and and we'll, we'll try to keep it we'll try to keep it down a little bit. So speaking of of non-R-rated movies, I am I am sort of struggling against the darkness and the you know all the things that are going on right now. So uh, my wife and I watched Babe last night, mm. and and you know that that movie ages really well. Although I have to tell you that I think it's going to be a long time before we're going to have ham around. There. <laughs> 
or any pork product whatsoever. So I, I, I'm, I'm just I'm just saying we're gonna have a lot of fish, a lot of chicken, but you know this is this is this is the danger of watching movies that are really realistic and make you go. Um, anyway, that, but that that's a good movie. So <laughs> yeah, I, I I I saw in your Twitter feed, by the way. And I was actually going to ask you, are, you know, how are you, how are you holding up uh, during the Christmas season with all of the, the crazy when, when, during a period in which, I, I, I think you're, you're, you're seeing the rhetoric escalating. You're seeing things talked about that we've never seen talked about before. I see now that we have the candidate for governor in Virginia and a state senator in North Carolina calling on the president to suspend the Constitution invoke martial law, suspend civil liberties, and invoke the Insurrection Act, which is, I want to just point out, this is new, coming from leaders. So I, I noticed that you tweeted out that you, you know, I, Isaiah 9, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Mm-hmm. Anytime soon? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I, this whole season of Advent uh, has been... I, in some ways, helpful to to be reminded that um, for for centuries, uh, people were waiting for the coming Messiah, and the darkness that they experienced uh, w- was heavy and uh, despairing. And moment, you know, many times in Israel's history, uh, you know, it did not seem possible that the Messiah could come through uh, with the, the devastation that they were facing from invaders and um, uh, challenges from within the idolatry from within and and you you see throughout the the story of the Old Testament leading to the um, coming of Christ just this amazing way in which God provides for his people and he always preserves a remnant and so I, I don't know I've, I've in in ways that I have not fully uh, appreciated in the past, recognizing the darkness. And of course, we're going through that winter season, right? As the, mm-hmm. it's getting darker and darker each day. Um, I, I feel some comfort in knowing that uh, for millennia, uh, Christians have um, uh, identified with that, that feeling of the world is very dark, but we do have a hope. And we do have light that pierced through the darkness in Christ. So I, I, my hope is in Christ and not necessarily in um, uh, the Republican Party ever coming to terms with uh, all of their mistakes and, and problems. But um, at the same time, because I have that hope, it gives me uh, the, the the ability to keep pressing on and trying to fight for what's right in our country. But oh, that, that is no, thank you for that. I, I really do appreciate that. You know, I, I noticed that uh, I, I've been reading a lot of history lately. And the other day I was trying to put together, you know, whether wh- there's any pattern in what I'm reading. And and I, I think the main pattern was I was reading about past historical awfulness and disasters that we got through <laughs> so, yes. to remind myself, you know, it's bad, but it used to be much, much worse. And yes. other societies, other civilizations were able to take it they were somehow able to come through and come out of the darkness and renew themselves in some way, including the United States. So, so, so maybe that's the way to, to think about it is, is not to deny the darkness, but to realize that uh, we're not the first ones um, who have walked in darkness and that there is hope. So I, now I feel almost guilty, Elizabeth, <laughs> taking you back just a little bit. 
So we're having this mass breakup um, going on uh, on on the right over what what's going to happen with Donald Trump now. About the caveat that you know maybe nothing matters, maybe uh, nothing will loosen the death grip that Donald Trump has on the Republican base, but but you are seeing some real cracks right now um, over the you know how do you respond to the election, uh, Trump's defeat, um, the fights over Bill Barr. Let's play the soundbite of uh, Doctor Seb Gorka, who, who is addressing Attorney General Bill Barr, who until five minutes ago was one of the loyalist Trumpists, but apparently committed the cardinal sin of, uh, you know, saying no uh, to, uh, to, to the president uh, you know, once, once or twice. So this, this is Seb Gorka saying good riddance to Bill Barr. But not one person has gone to jail. Not one person out of the key actors was charged with a felony. And that is why you have proven yourself to be one thing. Not just a failure as Attorney General Bill Barr, but as a coward at a time when we need courageous men more than ever. You were a coward. So goodbye and good riddance. I'm Sebastian Gorka, former strategist. <laughs> okay, Elizabeth, I, I, I swore to myself I was going to get through the entire podcast without using the word fascist. <laughs> I'm sorry. How do you listen to it? He really should be in a movie. Like the voice is just frightening. It's, it's like a Bond villain. Yes. Courageous people. We would throw our enemies in jail, release the Kraken, and kill <laughs> our opponents. I mean, this is who this guy is. This guy used to work in the White House. And oh. people in, in MAGA world are going, yeah, yeah, that's what that's what we need to make America great. Okay, so that's the least awful thing I have for you. <laughs> yeah, it, you know, you, you listen to that and even his opening uh, art, part of his argument, why, why can't you come to the conclusion that if he didn't arrest anybody or put, you know, or indict anybody, maybe that's because there was nobody to arrest and indict. It's amazing the deception uh, that has wrapped around the minds of, of the true believers. And, and, you know, I don't know which category I'm, I'm taken by your, your podcast yesterday with uh, Denver Riggleman. You talked about the true believers and the pan, those that pander to the true believers and those that are in abject and ignorance that kind of, follow the crowd, so to speak, you know, is, is Sebastian Gorka a true believer or is he just a, a panderer to the true believers? I don't know, but you, you would hope that somebody that had worked in the white house would have a little bit more logic to them to be able to deduce that if Bill Barr, who did a whole lot of things that I think most of us think uh, were against the rule of law in his uh, tenure as attorney general, if he couldn't find somebody to arrest uh, for all of these uh, supposed ills that the president thinks have been conducted against him. Maybe it's because nobody did them. Just but the thought. Anyone, anyone can arrest a guilty person. It takes courage to arrest someone. Who exactly. Wrong. <laughs> this, this is the thing. It, it takes courage just to arrest your political opponents. So when you were working in the Trump administration, did you ever sit in a room and look around going, what percentage of the people here are just crazy? Oh, all the time. Okay. I'm sorry. All the time. You're constantly looking around the room going, is there anybody here that I can trust? And you kind of, you're watching eyes and eyebrows very closely. So when one of the known crazy speaks, I mean, are they kind of, do they have a poker face on or are they like, 
you know, nodding their head up and down in, in, you know, excitement because Stephen Miller has said something and, you know, everybody is really, you know, in love with Stephen and his power and his proximity to the president and, you know, it, the sycophants uh, who, um, you know, it, it's, but yes, you're constantly looking because that's how you survive is to make sure you don't accidentally say something um, in your moment of frustration to somebody that actually is a true believer because that that's a death nail. Boy, that's a, that's a that's a whole different level to think about people who would get a tingle up their leg because Stephen Miller has just said something. Oh, yeah. Stephen Miller. This is fantastic. Okay, so speaking of true believers, so um, our, our our producer, senior editor of the Bulwark, Jim Swift, who swims in these in, in the in these waters, <laughs> I was saying, you know, I, I've I've put together some some crazy stuff, and he says I got more stuff that's even worse. So here's a QAnon conspiracy theorist named Johnny Enlow. I've never heard of him before. But since we're talking about true believers, in this soundbite, he is describing what God told him, that God broke down the numbers. And basically what he says is that any election results showing that Trump got fewer votes than the 88 million Twitter followers he have he has must be fraudulent. But again, he's quoting what God told him. That's Johnny in law. I don't know why the Lord gave me two sets of, of numbers, but he just says, you're not even seeing close. First say you're not seeing close to the truth unless you see at least 88 million. He told me in a weird way, if you don't see at least as many votes as he has followers on Twitter and uh, 88.6 million uh, followers on Twitter. And that has been squelched as, as well. And, and, then the states he went through just one by one with me and, and was telling me who was where. And so here's the big news. California, and New York, both went red. God told him this. Wow. See, I, I feel somewhat inadequate because I usually go, go through states listening to somebody like Steve Kornacki. I mean, that, that's the <laughs> highest authority that I know, Steve Kornacki. This He's amazing so, with me. Okay. okay I, I know we don't, can't know this, but does this... Which category does this guy fall in? Does he actually think that God is telling him that Donald Trump won the state of California? What? I, so, so I've never heard of this guy. Okay. Um, but I will say that in the last six months, uh, I have become more aware of a part of, uh, I, I don't even know how to categorize this, people that call themselves Christians um, and have various platforms. Uh, some of them are extremely wealthy uh, in the way that they uh, supposedly teach their followers. And um, and I think I would put, it sounds like this this guy in that category of, of people who uh, put more credence in supposed dreams than they do in scripture. And I think the best way, clearly just on that space, when you listen to this, it, it makes you go really and and you just kind of want to dismiss it but here's the thing that there are people listening to your podcast that probably know people who are in that latter category of of ignorance and and are persuadable by voices like this so i think when you encounter those the best way to to address it is to introduce to them scripture that teaches how you discern a true prophet from a false prophet. And if, if you go all the way back in the Old Testament, when Moses is retelling the law to the Israelites, God actually tells Israel how to discern 
uh, a true prophet from a false prophet. He says, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul. There are numerous, you know, like I I counted just really quickly before we started our podcast, there's at least 20 different uh, teachings in the Old and New Testament about how you discern a prophet from a false prophet in first John four, one to give you a new Testament reference, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God for many false prophets have gone out into the world. So I I think um, if if you're approaching a loved one who is uh, really taken by one of these teachers who is telling them that they've had dreams that Trump really won, that uh, there were a lot of prophets, supposed prophecies before the election that Trump was going to win. Um, That's a great example of, you know what, if their uh, dreams and prophecies didn't come true, they're probably a false prophet. Um, But but even more so, those that continue to supposedly prophesy today that he's actually won, go back to what the scripture teaches. And, And it's pretty clear that the uh, the guidepost, especially in the New Testament, is that if if those prophets are not pointing you to Jesus, then they are false. And the, the common theme in many of these prophecies is that they have elevated Trump to a Messiah-like figure, to a false yeah, Christ-like very, figure. very much so. And, and that's where I, you know, we can have our political disagreements in the Christian church about who is the right uh, leader for the country. And, and you know where I stand on that. But you know, there is no room in scripture for disagreement when it comes to who is on the, the throne in heaven. It is Jesus. It is not Donald Trump. Oh, well, um, so I think that should resolve it for most true believers. Go well, back you, to what scripture you, teaches. You, you, would, you would hope so. But, but you know, now that we're talking about this, this has become one of the most troubling developments. This, this sort of you know, Trump as Messiah and the number of Christian leaders who have who've gone all in on, on, on Trump and use this sort of apocalyptic rhetoric. Whether you're talking about Eric Metaxas or you know, Jerry Falwell or, or any a lot of these other the folks out there, the way in which that there there has been this 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 you know active Christian embrace of of, of Trump that is actually scary in, in 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 some ways because of what it does to Christianity, but but also the way it it. it it, it it feels like it's dangerous, and I'm I'm thinking about the David French column. I know you had tweeted that out uh, as as well because he's talking about the the kind of rhetoric that we're getting from these these folks. I mean, this is a real challenge for the Christian Church right now, right? Because I think a lot of people, and I'll be honest with you, I mean, I'm looking at this going, you know what? I is 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 this what modern Christianity in America has become? Is it a de- devolved to this? I mean, th- this seems like a a a scandal for the church. It is. I think in David French, has, uh, in many of his op-eds, has kind of pointed to um, a, a biblical illiteracy allowed us to get where we are today. Um, and I've, there are many teachers that I've um, been very blessed by who have pointed out uh, de- decades ago and, and continuing into the present moment that when you... 
um, treat church like a social gathering, a community. I mean, community is important. I'm not dismissing that. But when that's all it is, um, when it's not about um, uh, pursuing Jesus and and learning the scriptures and um, holding each other accountable and and uh, maturing in that belief, when when it's uh, when you don't do those things, you you end up creating a, a bunch of people who supposedly are moral, but they they have no backbone. Um, uh, there's a, a verse in James, which I'm not going to quote mm-hmm. pro- uh, properly, but it talks about being tossed around by the wind. Um, and that's kind of what we have. We have a whole group of people who think that they're Christians, and, and that's between them and the Lord. I, I can't discern, but uh, you know, there's also a whole lot of scripture that says that that we will be judged, um, uh, and there will be people who think they are followers of Christ, and He will say, "I I never knew you." Um, so I, I am concerned. There are a whole lot of people out there that think that they're a Christian, but they haven't actually uh, studied the uh, the Bible. They haven't actually um, been allowed the Lord to work in their lives and transform their their minds, and uh, consequently, we have people running around the country with the label of Christian who might not actually be Christian. And that might explain a lot of, of what we're seeing is that yeah, they're not actually truly being guide, guided by the Lord. And they, and they have many followers. So he, maybe you could clarify this for me, because one of the themes that I see is that Donald Trump is God's anointed, that God, Donald Trump is the president because this is the will of God. And, and when God wants Donald Trump to be president, God wants Donald Trump to be reelected president. God wants another four years. So what happens on January 21st when he's not the president anymore and Joe Biden is the president? Do these people say that Joe Biden is the anointed or how does how do they think God's will works? Do you follow when I when, when I'm, yeah, when I'm no, I, exactly? I mean, it, it, that's I think what has many of us concerned. I, I in the in the security community, I, I think the I hope that some portion, uh, hopefully a large portion, when we get to January twenty first, will say, you know, I'm sure there will be a grieving process. I'm sure it will be ugly, but kind of realize that they were wrong, and and go to the back to the basics, which is if you believe in the God of the Bible, then he, you believe in his sovereignty and you believe that if he wanted Donald Trump to be president, he would still be president because because he has that authority. He has that power. He doesn't need man to intervene, to execute his will. Um, So hopefully uh, some of them that are still holding on thinking that something drastic might happen, that, that changes the course of uh, the the path that we seem to be on, um, hopefully by January 21st, when it is President Biden, they they go, wow, I was just really wrong. And they that's going to be a little messy for them, but, but not as messy as the ones who uh, don't fully understand scripture and think that somehow it's their call to make it so, right? That they are instruments of God to uh, implement his will. And, uh, you know, history tells us when man thinks that it's their job uh, to, by force, uh, implement God's will. Bad, bad, bad things happen, um, and it's it's totally unbiblical. There is there is no uh, no verse in Scripture that you can look to. In fact, Jesus gives us the opposite example um, in the um, 
uh, in the scene where he's being arrested to be crucified and his disciples take up arms. He says, no, that is not what I'm here for. And in uh, testifying to Pontius Pilate says, like, look, if, if my kingdom was about taking over Rome, uh, you know, we wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation. Like my kingdom's from another world. So like it's the, at the underlying root of this deception, I think uh, you have a lot of people that have conflated what is uh, the kingdom of God, what God's purposes are on this earth and uh, our country and our country is not uh, God's kingdom. Um, and, and, and that we, we really have to go back to like very, a good biblical teaching to kind of untangle the deception that has happened here. Um, but, but the, I'll, I'll pivot back to what you're leading toward, towards Charlie, that the concern I have in the interim, cause that kind of work takes a long time for people to uh, wake up from deception. And in the interim, I, I am concerned that we keep um, amping up uh, the rhetoric. We keep amping up, you know, whether it's on parlor or, chat rooms uh, that are that are even further in the fringes. I mean, there are conversations happening about uh, getting ready for taking up arms, that martial law is going to be declared, and therefore we need to be prepared to protect our homes, protect our neighborhoods. Like, it, it, it is, at least in my lifetime, one of the more dangerous okay, moments domestically. Okay, okay let, let's pivot to that, because this was the question that I really wanted to ask you, how dangerous you thought this particular moment was, what feels like mass radicalization going on here. And I have one more sound bite for you along along those lines that's a perfect way of setting it up this is this and again i'm not really familiar with him but he's got an audience this radical right-wing commentator named josh bernstein who is declaring that he will die rather than live in slavery under a biden regime and you know again you know the question that i always have when i hear people say i'm willing to die what are you willing to do my question is well who are you willing to shoot who are you willing to stab what are you willing to blow up because you're using the language of violence and death and blood so in case anybody thinks that i'm exaggerating this here's a soundbite from this commentator josh bernstein who is one of these voices out here in the megaverse are you willing to die for your right to continue your freedoms I know I am. I'm a warrior in this. I know many of you are as well. Because I look at it this way. Who wants to live in slavery? Who wants to live in captivity from these tyrants and these oligarchs? I certainly don't. And I'm not going to go any further. I'm not going to say anything else. But let's just say this. We will never live under a Biden regime with tyranny and socialism and communism. It will not happen. Keep the faith, everybody. Keep fighting. This is not over. We can even continue past Inauguration Day if, God forbid, they steal it from us. We will not relent, okay? Are you willing? I know I am. The blood of patriots and tyrants could be coming, and it's going to be hopefully a lot more tyrants than patriots. Elizabeth Newman, what are we listening to there? Oh, so I, I happen to have in front of me a quote from um, Berger, who, who's, who's an expert in extremism. Uh, 
Violent extremism is the belief that an in-group's success or survival requires violent action, ranging from verbal discrimination to genocide against an out-group. What we have experienced in our, uh, well, really the last five years, um, is a rapid acceleration of polarization where, and don't, I don't want to hear the Twitter both sides-ism, I've listened to the full statement here, um, where you do have on both sides uh, a polarized fringe elements that for purposes of uh, raising money and raising support tend to get the most uh, attention. And the difference between the left and the right, though, is that the left didn't have at the head of their political movement uh, somebody that was willing to in, incite the fringes. And so the fringe stayed the fringe on the left. On the right, what we've had in Trump is a implicit endorsement um, and uh, an intentional uh, efforts to continue to sow anger, continue to sow grievance that has allowed the fringes to move more and more into the Republican mainstream. And so it, it, it's, it's been this way, this, this dynamic in the right and then the Republican party uh, of, of dancing with fringe elements. It's been that way for, for decades. Um, and if, if there's some really good books out there uh, more recently that describe um, why some of the uh, things that the Republican Party came to stand for, um, if you look, look beneath the hood, it's kind of ugly. It's it, A lot of it was driven by uh, a reaction to desegregation. Uh, it's inherently racist. Um, now, that doesn't mean the people that believe in, say, things like school choice are, in fact, racist. But if you go back to the history of where some of these movements came from, it, it's it's ugly. And because the, I think many in uh, politics uh, thought that we could just ignore fringes and not denounce them, uh, or if we denounce them, it's, you know, once in a while. Um, when Trump came on stage, not only did he not denounce, but he kind of invited them up to the stage with him. And he, he, basically, these guys were always there. They were small. They were irrelevant. They were on the fringes. And, and over the last four years, it, it feels that they've moved closer and closer. They've gotten more oxygen, more attention, bigger platforms. And you just feel that something that had been, you know, sort of, again, a danger. And you've talked about this, you know, the danger of white nationalist terrorism, which I think, you know, people have downplayed in the past. This has been there. It's been a growing threat. But it really feels like it's, it's having a moment now. That's exactly right. And, and here's, here's where the average Republican who, you know, statistically, according to the polls, believes that the election was stolen from Donald Trump. Here's what you need to be aware of. Um, regardless of that argument of fraud, the people that are actually trying to take advantage of this are white supremacist and anti-government extremists. There are people who would love nothing more from the, than for this country to devolve into civil war for the purpose of being able to overthrow the U.S. government and establish a white nation state. Hmm. 
So while while you, um, a Republican who are you, you think racism is horrible, you think uh, that you just want to protect your conservative values and your concern that Biden's going to uh, usher in a socialist state. And so you you find alignment in some of this rhetoric that you hear and you might not even be aware that the people that you're hearing it from are, you know, in fact, a part of this white nationalist, white supremacist movement, um, you need to be aware that you are getting in bed with evil. And that evil is going to recruit the vulnerable in your in your community. Now, not everybody in uh, the United States is vulnerable to being um, uh, moving into violence. But when you expand the pool of potential uh, parties that um, are, are outraged that have the grievance, uh, you know, and if, if you take the, you know, 70-ish million that voted for Trump and apparently 70% of them think that uh, the, the election was stolen, okay, now we're at, my math is rough on, in my head, 50 million uh, people number. in the country. So that's, that's a pretty large pool of people that have been radicalized in their thought. Now, that does not mean that they're... Uh, vulnerable to uh, committing acts of violence, but you don't, it doesn't take that many, uh, that's a very tiny percentage of 50 million is still a whole lot of people that can wreak havoc in our country and lead to loss of life. So that's the concern we have is the pool of potential extremists has gotten larger and it won't take much for uh, people that have been waiting for this moment since the 80s to be able to uh, accelerate that violence and, and carry out acts of attack. And then, I mean, you have calls for martial law, which uh, I, th- I think is another a grave concern because I think in the conservative community, this, there have been a number of lies that have been allowed to um, perpetuate uh, un- unchallenged that um, it is okay for you to go join a militia. It's not, it's illegal. You cannot carry out uh, militia uh, uh, law enforcement acts in as part of a, a private militia. That is not what the Second Amendment says. And there are laws on the books in all 50 states outlawing private militia actions. The militia that is allowed to be active in your state is the National Guard. So if you really want to join a militia, go join the National Guard. But that is a very prevalent view um, in mainstream conservative circles that a private militia is protected under the Second Amendment. So there's a, a confluence of misinformation that goes back years to um, intentional disinformation. We know that Russia is trying to exacerbate this. And then we have the white supremacists that have been at this for 40 plus years trying to, to wait for their moment. I mean, we this is just a, a very toxic soup of uh, danger. And this is why I get so angry at Republican leaders. If, if more of them would just stand up and say, Trump, you've lost and no, there, there is no fraud or not on a massive scale. It, that would, that would snap certain parties out of it. It, not all, but, but the, I think they just view this as a political fight and they don't see the danger that they are allowing to unfurl. It's 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 like you're watching your kids play with matches next to uh, a stove with the gas, uh, the you know the gas light pilot or what do you call it? The gas has been fully turned on on the stove, and your kids are a few feet away playing with na- matches. What like ridiculous? Stop it! Turn off the gas and move the kids away and take away the matches. But 
But they seem to think that if they just, you know, quietly stand by, okay, McConnell has said his speech yesterday. Yeah, I'm glad he did it. But that it's not enough. They they do not realize the the fire that they are allowing uh, to take over our country. It, it, we will be dealing the, with this or they don't care. at a prison community for the next 20 years. No, I, I I agree with you. I mean, you know, I'm I'm glad that uh, Mitch McConnell gave that uh, that speech yesterday. But waiting for more than a month gave that uh, one month for this stuff to fester out there for the poison to spread, and that will have consequences. You know, listening to you though, I um, I, I obviously have been making a mistake by using the word crazy, because the the crazy is not what's happening here. It is radicalization. And it is much more organized and much more irrationally rational. Let me back up on that for a moment. You know, when I don't think that people have have really you know gotten their heads around what ha- almost happened in Michigan, how well organized that was, how many people were involved, what would have happened if these guys um, would have kidnapped or murdered the governor of Michigan if they would have staged public executions in the Capitol. And I don't know whether you want to describe these guys as crazy, but they were clearly radicalized. And you do not need, as you point out, a huge number of people who are unbalanced um, or who are extreme or who have been fed this steady diet of, of extremism. And you know what? When I say irrationally rational, if you genuinely believe that there are people who are stealing your country, if you really believe that we are under attack from the Chinese communists, if you really believe, you know, that, uh, that this elect, that this democracy has been completely hijacked, then it becomes a quasi rational, understandable reaction, right? If people are saying, are you willing to fight for your country? Are you willing to stand up against foreign and domestic enemies? They are trying to destroy the Constitution. They are trying to destroy America. Are you willing to fight for your country? And that kind of rhetoric is going to appeal to the crazies, but also to people who are, you know, not quote unquote crazy, just simply radicalized. That's right. And, and, I think you're you're spot on to recognize that it's it doesn't work to call them crazy because it, they 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 got there through rational thought. It's that they've yeah. been exposed to a different set of quote unquote yeah. facts, right? And and they uh, in their echo chamber are only associating with people that share that viewpoint. And we know from uh, social scientists that when you uh, spend time with uh, people that share the same viewpoint, you, you end up actually walking out of that uh, experience, having a more hardened viewpoint, uh, if you will, a more radicalized viewpoint than what you walked in with. And um, absent other perspectives, absent exposure to people different than you, you tend to uh, become hardened and entrenched in your views. So it, it, there's logic behind why people get to the point of uh, fearing that uh, whatever the the thing is that they've been told to fear might happen. And you know when I mean, and I'll go back to the the quote that I, I mentioned uh, earlier about extremism. That the violence comes in when people feel like they have no other recourse. Right. They feel an existential threat to their way of life. And that because, you know, the, the, you know, worst case scenario has happened. The only option is to protect my family, to protect my community, to protect my country. I take up arms. And so part of hearing them out and this is, I, it's funny when I reference things on Twitter, I, I, 
you know, left, left Twitter gets really, really upset with me. But empathy is a really important part of breaking this hate cycle. Um, all of the folks that have that do disengagement work, and I, I'm not a practitioner here, but I love talking to the people that do this work. And there is not a simple answer of how you de-radicalize, but there is always a commonality of some sort of, of empathy or love playing a role in, in breaking the mindset of hate. So that, that's not a calling for everybody. I'm not suggesting that that we all um, try to go become uh, interventionist or disengagement uh, experts, but uh, it, we can all be better neighbors. We can all, um, you know, practice kindness and empathy and offer grace, even to the people that we think right now are acting crazy or are completely deceived. We can still, um, with those, especially that that you have a, a bond with or a, a a connection, they still need your love. The worst thing that we could do is further isolate people um, because in that isolation, they become more radicalized and more likely to commit an act of violence. No, that's, 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 that's really, that, that's, that's, that's really powerful. And, and as I'm listening to this, I'm thinking, am I capable of that? Am I willing to do that? And I, and I honestly don't know. I mean, I, I honestly don't know because I've, I've spent years trying to break through those those silos and they they do become impenetrable at a certain point. And it, it is hard. It's hard for someone like me to be genuinely empathetic to somebody who I believe is so fundamentally wrong. I mean, if I really thought that I could bring them along and say, OK, you understand that this is not true, that if I could give them the argument and say, you know, no, your election's not being stolen. No, you know, Dominion did not shift this. No, you know, Joe Biden is is not this Marxist tyrant, all of this stuff. If I thought that would make a difference. But I guess part of me is, I, you know, pre-selling the, the argument, knowing that I could lay everything out. I could walk through every one of the 60 court cases that have been thrown out, the complete lack of any evidence. And it wouldn't make any difference. So, but but you're right. This this, this requires an act of charity, and and you're a better person than I am. I'm. Uh, I don't know about that, but I do know that. Um, I I mean, I I have folks in my own life that I struggle with, and it it takes a lot of prayer, and it takes a lot of um, uh, recognizing that you know none of us are perfect. We're we all have stumbled. We all have. Um, uh, you know, uh, flaws and, and challenges in, um, in how we, we treat one another. And for me, that's where my faith comes in. That, that my, the reason that uh, I love others that are difficult to love, and I'm not saying I do it well, but the reason that you try is because that's the call on my life, because mm-hmm. I, I believe Jesus uh, died for me while I was still in the depth of my sin and uh, I had no good in me and yet he sacrificed his life for me. So in the same way um, we are called uh, who are his followers, we are called to, to love others, even when they are unlovable. That is not easy day to day. Um, No doubt about it. So in in, in just the couple of minutes that we we have left, I, I, this is kind of a change of mood here, but I wanted you to comment on this massive cyber attack that's going on. You'd worked in the Department of Homeland Security. Um, It feels as if um, this is one of those, there's so much going on in the news right now that's understandably that it's not getting as much attention. But this, uh, the fact that the Russians appear to be behind this massive cyber attack and 
this is taking place after the Trump administration seems to have dismantled most of its cybersecurity infrastructure. You know, cybersecurity is uh, in the federal government is very nascent. Uh, we and most of the experts will tell you that we were overdue for an attack like this. And most of the experts before this attack was known uh, were saying that we would not be prepared uh, for uh, an attack. And now maybe the good news is that this is an espionage type of attack, which could have some grave damage to us, but it's not some of the worst type of attacks that experts have been worrying about. Attacks on infrastructure, um, things like, knocking out a power grid like they, they did in Ukraine. Um, you know, th- th- there are there are worser scenarios you can envision, but this, from all accounts, and I, I only have access to what the press is reporting, but it looks pretty bad, and uh, I, I, it's going to take a while for us to fully understand the, the damage that has occurred. But it, it, it shows what I, what I hope the takeaway is, and, and maybe some good reporters can help um, explain this, you know, the, the work of government is not exciting. Um, day in and day out, it's it's about, do, you know, executing and implementing, uh, you know, changes within a bureaucracy, um, working with partners in the private sector um, to find uh, the right incentives for the private sector to, you know, protect themselves. Like, it, it's not that, it's not as exciting as they make it seem on TV. <laughs> and um, the... Uh, Government is not nearly as strong as it needs to be in this space. And the, the good folks that have been working on this for the last four years, I mean, they, they've done everything they possibly can. Um, there's strong support on the Hill for doing more. Uh, they have funded uh, in the last two years. They've uh, drastically increased budgets, which is great. But all of that takes time to implement. And we are woefully behind in terms of our defenses and in terms of our ability to um, uh, uh, be punitive or, or uh, counter counterattack, if you will, and and it, it's not it's not exciting, but it's why you need good public servants uh, and and good political appointees. And in the Trump administration, very few people were willing to come in and serve. Uh, Chris Krebs was one of the good ones, and as you mentioned, he he got pushed out. And but at least he was there for four years and, and helped uh, drive a significant progress, getting a lot of attention on the Hill um, on this critical error or area of issues that need to be addressed. But th- there's a lot of work to be done, and, and sadly, um, I, I think the American people are going to start to see firsthand uh, that we we are um, woefully. Uh, inadequate in our defenses. And, it, and it's not, uh, I want to be really clear, this is not because uh, people in government have failed as much as uh, the challenge of a bureaucratic large-scale government like what we have um, leads to not being agile enough. You know, it's very difficult in the, many of these emerging threat areas uh, budgets don't get passed. Reauthorizations don't get passed. Congress is slow. The executive branch is slow. Everybody's slow. And yet our enemies are extremely agile. So some of this is we've got to rethink how government operates so that we can be more agile and and keeping ourselves safe. Elizabeth Newman, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast and being so generous with your time. We appreciate it very much and appreciate your voice. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow, and we'll do this all over again.